I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and very little security. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy on Substack at meganmurphy.substack.com or you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. You can also donate and learn more about my work at meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Pamela Garfield Yeager, who calls herself the truthful therapist. She spent over 20 years as a social worker and therapist and is now working to help parents and youth navigate an ever more politicized therapy industry. Hi, Pamela. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm really looking forward to talking to you at long last. Yes. uh, For a second, I thought we were actually taking some drugs together. I got confused. I mean, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) That's the theme of the podcast. We take some drugs, we have a chat, put it up on the internet, see how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, Metaphorically, we are. We're we're not on any drugs, everyone. We're sober. the middle of the afternoon. Yes. Um, so Pamela, I, I found you on Instagram and I was intrigued because you're one of the very few therapists who, uh, who's speaking out about, I mean, gender identity ideology in particular, um, other issues as well. But I think that particularly within the therapy realm, it's pretty difficult to challenge, you know, liberal orthodoxy, I guess we could call it. Um, I mean, I don't think it's particularly liberal, so you could call it, you know, like woke ideology, progressive politics, whatever. Um, But you call yourself the the truthful therapist. Yes. Tell me what that means. Okay. Well, first, I want to give my husband a shout out. That was his idea. The Truthful <laughs> he, Therapist? Yeah, the name. Okay. Um, I thought it was a great name. And really what it is, I'm, yes, I guess I am talking about sp- certain things that might appear political that are affiliated with one side of the aisle or another, sometimes not. But what I'm really, my goal is really to just bring out the truth. Um, I was in the past very much aligned, I think, with some of this woke ideology to a degree, at least not to the level it's at now. And I kind of woke up. So I think I'm awake, not woke. And so I just decided I wanted to speak out and tell the truth, really share the things, even as what would be previously considered woke is no longer woke enough. (laughs) And um, yeah, just share the truth about what mental health treatment is, how it should be, 
My focus is mainly on children and families. So one of my biggest concerns is about how parents and children are being separated or being torn apart. Mm. And that's something that is new to me. That's not something I knew was a goal, I guess, in the past. Um, we, we have seen, I think a lot of people who are paying attention have seen teachers do this, but me in the mental health profession was seeing it in the mental health field as well. So that's one of my goals is to educate parents and help families understand what good ethical therapy is and how families and mental health providers should be working together. So, yeah. I think that's interesting because we have been hearing about that issue lately where kids are being turned against their parents and it appears as though there is an effort to to separate families or turn kids and parents into enemies of one another. Um, I've heard many times, particularly coming from conservatives, this idea of, you know, there being an attack on the nuclear family, mm-hmm. which I don't totally understand and I'm trying to understand, but I don't totally understand that what that means. What are you seeing? Yeah. So I, first of all, I don't think for the most part, the therapists that are doing this are doing it intentionally. I think most of them are just sort of going along with what they're, they think is the right thing. I think that they're looking at is they're, they're helping the kids and they, they've been kind of trained now to believe that if the parents aren't going along with some of these woke ideology things, as you referred, that there's, the parents are hurting the kids in some way or that the kids will get hurt in some way. So I think a lot of therapists believe that. So I think they're, they're not trying to hurt families or split them up in this nefarious way. I do think that the, it's coming from top down. I think there are some players. I can't really say who they are. I guess I'm being conspiracy theory, like I guess the globalists and all that. I don't I'm not, I haven't gone down the rabbit hole enough to fully understand <laughs> what's really happening, but I do think there's something very dark happening from above to run this, to train therapists to be this way. So I think that's what's happening. So I, yeah, I think there's a rescue fantasy going on. I think that therapists believe that they're doing the right thing by helping children because they're kind of more enlightened than the parents, as opposed to recognizing they're working with a family who has a certain cultural belief that might not align with theirs and working together with them collaboratively. And that's the piece that I see is missing. Right. I mean, I think that what I've seen as I've sort of come out of my very left bubble and been able to look back on that and look at what's happening in the present in terms of left-wing politics and progressive ideologies, which, you know, I think is very connected to the social work therapy field, um, is that there is this kind of attitude of, I know best, I know more than these people, these people are wrong and they're a danger to themselves. (laughs) Right. Or in this case, a danger to their kids. You know, I, I know best. I know better than these families. I know better than these parents. I know better than these voters. Um, and so, it, you know, like I, I need to kind of tell them what's what. And if they don't listen, I'm just going to do it for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I even 
I'm ashamed of this, but I think I even participated in that to a degree. There's this there's this push in, in my field to sort of psychoeducate people on different topics, to teach them how to be, teach them what's the right thing. I mean, I, you could argue what's right or wrong, but if someone's not, if it's, if it doesn't align with our culture, it really isn't the, I don't, now I really see it's not the right thing. So for example, I, about drugs, right? Like, so if someone's using drugs or someone's, um, actually a better example is, I was actually working in Palo Alto, California, and I was working with a lot of Chinese families and kids who were had under a lot of academic pressure, working really hard. And so I was working with these families. I'm kind of a touchy-feely Jewish therapist, you know, <laughs> not exactly the same culture as these families from China who are really about, you know, discipline, working hard. And I, um, I still, honestly, I had my bias and I recognized it, but um, it was it was a challenge to not want to say to these parents, "Stop pushing your kids so hard. Uh, their mental health is more important than their grades." <laughs> that kind of thing. And so I even had some bias there, um, but I recognized that I had that bias and I kept it in check. So, mm. but but I but I know it was there, and it probably leaked out sometimes. Um, but also I still involve the parents and then I would sometimes learn there were other issues going on and it wasn't always what I assumed. It was sometimes the kid putting the pressure on themselves because they themselves believe that they had to perform for their family because their family sacrificed so much to be in the United States, to live in Palo Alto, which is maybe the most expensive town in the entire country, one of them anyway. And it was so many sacrifices. So the, the child put this pressure on them. So I actually made this assumption. The parents are making this pressure. And, oh, if only these parents would let off, then the kids would be calmer and better and not have so many mental health issues. But then I'd come to learn that it was actually a whole different story. Mm -hmm. But I had the bias, honestly, in the beginning until I did more investigating. So that's why it's so important to involve families and to check our biases. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think, I think, and at the same time, it must be tough because there are lines, you know, where you do need to intervene or yeah. when something harmful is happening to kids. Um, I don't know how you do that as a therapist, but, you know, I suppose I don't want to say that, you know, anything goes and we just all shouldn't be judgmental because there's lots yeah. of cases where we should be judgmental and there For does sure. need to be some kind of intervention. Um, but I guess in terms of the, the progressive ideology or woke ideology approach, it ends up being about trying to force politics or ideology on people um, rather than necessarily doing what's right or what's honest mm -hmm. or what's even helpful. Yeah, that, I think that's a big piece of it, what is helpful. And of course, that's going to be a little arbitrary, but I think the important piece in what I'm trying to accentuate, there there is no concrete way to say what exactly is right or wrong because we're all coming from our own cultures, perspectives, and bias. And ultimately, it is up to the client and the family whether they want to work with you and this is a fit. But um, I think it's really important to work together and for the therapist to really have have their mind open to collaborate with other colleagues so that they're not stuck in their own 
what's called countertransference, their own feelings sort of getting in the way of working with a family. Um, it's a complicated thing, quite frankly, and, and a good skilled therapist recognizes that, that there aren't simple answers and that we should be really looking at th things from lots of different angles and from a deep perspective and not this concrete black and white, this is right, this is wrong. You just need to affirm a kid, otherwise they're going to kill themselves, for example, which is what's happening now. There's a lot of black and white thinking happening now. And all, my whole profession in the past, in almost an annoying way, was so... Let's explore. Let's figure it out. Let's analyze it. And it's funny that we've gone so the other direction. And I, I guess I'm trying to just move people back to where they were, at least to a degree, to just be able to look at things from different points of view. When did you first start encountering the whole idea of trans kids in your practice? Like, was there a certain point when you started dealing with families or maybe youth clients. I don't know exactly how it works and how, you know, working with kids works. I don't know if they come in with their families initially or what, but was there a certain point when you were encountering kids or teens who were identifying as trans or maybe like gender dysphoric? So my, my situation is a bit unique and I think that's, it's partly why I'm, I'm able to speak out and why it's it's things have been more apparent to me is because I actually just started a sub stack and just wrote an article called Rip Fan Therapist because I was kind of asleep. I had this big disability for about four years from the years 2016 through 2021. So I was kind of out while all this was, I think, really um, escalating. So I didn't see the gradual it, it was happening but while I was working before, but it really, I think it really took off during those years while I was on disability. So I basically came back. I went, I, I, last time I worked with kids directly was in 2015 at that high school in Palo Alto. There was one transgender child in the entire high school that was out. I know people will say, oh, well, they were all in hiding. I don't, agree with that. But at the very least, there was one that was out and open. And the school was very accepting of that child and was working with them and also not trying to push them into safe spaces, had a separate changing room for that child. We really recognized that it was a dilemma and that there were things to work out and they, they hadn't figured out all the answers. It wasn't this big push at the, like there is now. Um, so that was in 2015. I got a new job at UCSF and that actually was with adults. And then I actually came down with this nerve basically a repetitive stress injury to the point where I was really laid up and I, I was completely disabled and wasn't really paying attention to any of this stuff because I was in severe pain. I was in bed and I was basically just trying to survive. And then 2020 happened. We had the lockdowns. I finally got back to work just part-time as a per diem, which is basically like a shift worker, which I was overqualified for, but I got back in at a teen program for it, it was actually adults and teens but they put me a lot with the teens because I was filling in for mentally ill kids and at that point so I went from zero or one child an entire school to three out of ten kids were identifying as non-binary in this program in 2021 and that was shocking in of itself but I think the more shocking part was how my colleagues were reacting to it like it was no big deal because I guess they've been in the field for a while I came back and it was a whole different world so it's like imagine going to sleep 
at the end of 2016 and then waking back up in 2021, the world really changed drastically, especially in these on these topics. So that's how I first started seeing it. That's how I encountered it in this really shocking way. So I didn't I didn't have the opportunity to see it come in gradually the way probably other people who were in the field during that time did. So that's how it, it happened for me. I wonder if you've noticed that, you know, between that time, um, you know, 2015 versus 2021, did you notice a change in terms of the kinds of things that kids were struggling with? Like we hear a lot about, you know, more kids than ever before are struggling with depression and anxiety, for example. Um, do, do you find that to be true? I mean, that's like a data point. So, you know, I'm already with the, all the kids that are depressed and anxious. So I saw them on both ends. Um, I'd say they, they, it, they all, they had a lot of depression and anxiety both then and now, but I think the way they're manifesting it is, is a little different. And I think social media, while it still had a very big influence, even in 2015, it has a much bigger influence now. I don't think, was there TikTok then? At least it wasn't influential. I don't know when TikTok came out. I don't, I mean, yeah, you didn't really yeah. start hearing about it that much until probably a few years ago. So I think, I think a lot of the social media stuff, it was, it was brewing then. It was there for sure. And it, it had a negative influence, but it's, I think it's just even stronger now. I think more kids are on social media. TikTok is a big one. Um, when I was at the program, which I'm no longer working at, by the way, because I did not comply with the California medical mandate. So that that's the other reason I'm able to speak out. Um, so the, the kids were talking a lot about how TikTok really influenced them in a negative way, not just about the gender stuff, but about self-harm. They would see a lot of people just doing the dancing kind of thing, but they'd have the scars on their arms and then that would trigger them and say that that's how make them want to cut more because it would be almost like a competition there's sort of this like showing off competition going on online mm -hmm. that they they talked about that i if i weren't in it wouldn't realize was happening so there's a lot of copycat things which happen in real life and that's been happening in real life for years um but now i think it's just multiplied yeah i mean i think that's always probably been an issue for teens where yeah. you know things like eating disorders for mm -hmm. example, um, and, you know, like cutting as a kind of teenage trend was around when I was a teenager. I remember girls showing scars on their legs and arms. Yeah. Um, but I did hear about that becoming a trend on TikTok, um, mm -hmm. the, the cutting and those kinds of scars, but also like doing dances and showing off bruises and injuries from like yeah. sexual behavior oh, really? as well. Um, yeah. I, I imagine I, I didn't hear them talk about it directly, but yeah, they didn't talk that that was not something I heard, but I believe that. <laughs> yeah. Like, but, but yeah, this sort of mental illness or mental health struggles as some kind of like social credit like some kind yeah. of like advertisement for attention for validation um which i mean i mean it makes sense because i think that what we all get and i think probably teens are particularly vulnerable to this is like dopamine hits from likes yeah for sure 
Yeah, the victim mentality thing. Um, I think it's always been a thing, but it's gotten, I think it's gotten much more, much more prevalent to accentuate the fact that they have a mental health issue. I think in some ways adults have really tried to bend over backwards to help kids who have mental health issues. And then of course, kids are kids. So then they take advantage of that. So striking that balance has been a struggle, I think. Um, and so they, I remember in one of the groups, the kids admitting how they would just get away with not doing their work instead of it being a way for them to manage when they really had depression, and anxiety. How do you figure that out? Um, it's, it's honestly not easy. I'm not even always blaming someone for being too lenient because sometimes I think it's tricky to figure out when is it genuine, when do you need to push the kid and that will actually help their mental health if they uh, complete an assignment and feel accomplished and when is it better for them to actually get cut them slack because they really are so depressed and anxious and maybe we're even just in the hospital for a mental breakdown of some sort right then they do need a, some slack for their assignments so what so but kids would talk about how they would play up their mental health issues so that they could get away with things and mm -hmm. that that wasn't the case in the past as much i didn't see that how much do you think that Overdiagnosis is a problem for youth. I mean, I'm not a therapist, but I do. I'm like, I'm really interested in psychology and I, I'm interested in like mental health and mental health diagnoses. And in general, of course, I'm interested in what's happening in the culture at large. So I pay attention and I read a lot about this stuff. But I tend to be a bit skeptical about diagnoses of things like anxiety and depression, as well as honestly, things like ADHD, because I don't always know, you know, what does it entail? What does it mean when someone is diagnosed with anxiety? Of course, many of us struggle with feeling stressed out or feeling anxious related to whatever's going on in our life feeling depressed, you know, if we're mm -hmm. having a hard time, if something bad happening, if, you know, we're struggling, struggling with like grief or a breakup or like, you know, financially, there's all sorts of reasons. But when people are being diagnosed as depressed or anxious, um, especially when they're minors, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I well, you asked earlier, do you think people are overdiagnosed. I think both adults and kids are overdiagnosed. Um, I actually should look into this. I wonder if uh, health centers are, are getting some kind of kickback for having more diagnoses of depression, because I do know mm -hmm. the health care that I received from Kaiser Permanente here in California, they're now starting universal screenings for all of their patients to screen whether they're depressed or not, which is like a seven question survey, which really doesn't give you the full picture if someone's actually depressed. Um, I'll even disclose myself, I had chronic pain for many years and and I, the doctors automatically thought it was in my head. So they wrote down in my chart that I had depression and anxiety, but they never did a mental health assessment on me. Mm -hmm. And I kept pushing back and saying, please do an assessment on me. I'm in serious pain. And yes, I'm crying in your office right now because you're not believing me, but I don't, I'm actually not depressed. It's funny. I, I was having a rough week last week and I think I had more mental health issues while I was feeling physically better than when I was actually really struggling with pain because I was 
working so hard to, to keep my life together and have meaning in my life day to day, hour by hour. But the point is, is that the doctors were diagnosing me. It's still in my chart that I was depressed. And I, I never got a diagnosis of depression for real. I actually did eventually get an assessment because I did see a therapist for chronic pain. And even when I was actually struggling to get off the antidepressants that they gave me incorrectly because I shouldn't have been on them. And I was actually tearful because the antidepressants were messing with my mood while I was trying to withdraw from them. They, the, the therapist still determined I did not meet criteria for any kind of depression or anxiety. She actually said I was actually really hopeful and really doing a good job finding meaning in my life. But yet it still shows in my chart that I have these diagnoses. So I wonder how many people are like me that have these diagnoses that follow them and go into statistics when they're really not even depressed or anxious. So that's one example myself. Um. <laughs> or people that go in seeking out drugs to fix their problem. Yeah. Walk into the doctor's office and say, like, I feel depressed or anxious. Can you prescribe me these anti-anxiety pills or anti-depression pills? Yeah, there's a lot of quick fix culture, I think, here in the United States, especially. And the doctors, a lot of them buy into it. I, I personally don't think a primary doctor should be prescribing any psychotropic medication for mental health issues. I think it should be done by a psychiatrist who usually does a, a more proper screening. Um, but I do think there is a lot of overdiagnosis. I think also the problem is there's a lot of self-diagnosis. I think the mm -hmm. internet has, it's a dual-edged sword where you can really find out information about yourself and figure out what's wrong. I actually figured out the rare condition that I have through the internet. And I'm really grateful that I had that tool, but then at the same time you go online and you can have a million <laughs> medical conditions that you don't have because you make yourself nuts looking at that. And I think there's a lot of sort of pop culture psychology out there and people are overdiagnosing. I think parents are overdiagnosing their kids. I know some people personally that, that are close to me that do this, that, kind of just start diagnosing their child. Oh, they have ADHD. Oh, they have anxiety. Oh, they have this. And it really, it my, in, in some of the personal cases, I won't say who, I think it has something to do with more of the family dynamics and some of the parenting things that are happening and not, uh, <laughs> um, but, but, but it just in general, I think it's easier for a parent to say, oh, well, they have this label instead of looking at all the deeper issues that might be happening in the household. So that happens. Um, and yeah, I think therapists will play into it. We need to diagnose to get insurance to pay for things. So that that's an influence. It's a big okay. influence. Yeah, the ADHD thing drives me a bit nuts because often when I hear like the symptoms of ADHD, I'm like, I have all those symptoms. Yeah, we do, right? <laughs> but I don't really have it. But like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with me. I think I'm just a human being with like, an imperfect brain and it's hard for me to focus yeah and get places on time i'm a little you know can be disorganized i'm really busy Same. <laughs> it's temperament and then and then it's interesting how we can focus and certain children with adhd can focus really well when it's a thing they want to do and then when it's a thing they don't want to do they don't focus so well so do they have adhd or is it that, yeah like that's not a big mystery it's hard yeah. for me to focus on doing a thing i don't want to do and we have the internet and we have things that are influencing our brains, all of us, adults and kids. So I think there's a lot of factors there. Um, I do think it's overdiagnosed. I think that people are running to medications too quickly. I'm not against people using medications and psychotropic medications. I actually wrote about that in my parents' guide that I wrote up. And I 
write about just things to consider when you're thinking about using medications. I think certain people really do benefit from medication. So I, I'm not against it or, um, I mean, I have some feelings now about big pharma, especially after the last couple of years we had and how things were pushed on I us. Mean, but... everyone should have some feelings about big <laughs> yeah. pharma after what's happened the past couple of years. <laughs> exactly. But that doesn't mean I want to throw it all out the window because I have seen a lot of people really benefit from medication, even children. Um, so I think there's a, it just really needs to be more case by case. I think we're looking at things where there's a lot, much more of a one size fits all kind of operation going on where I think people treatment used to be much more individualized. And I think that's what we're missing out on is it more individualized. I think we're, we're seeing things online. We're seeing what, how things should be done. And I guess there are some things that are best for more larger groups of people, but everyone's an individual. And I think that's getting lost. So I, I know that you've identified yourself as red pilled. Yeah. I want you to tell me what that means. So basically, the the veil has been lifted for me, where I feel like I used to be a much more naive little social worker that thought most people were doing the right thing and most things were nice. And then I've kind of, I think I have a little more of an open eyes about how things that I thought were nice and helping are not helping so much. And in some cases... I think, I'll just say, are intentionally not helping even though they're disguised as helpful. So, yeah. What kinds of things are we talking about? <laughs> well, uh, we get a little bit into... Um, I really didn't think the welfare system was that bad before. <laughs> and now I see how much it's really harmed society. Um, I, I think it's complicated to figure out what all the solutions are. And I don't really want to get into that because I'm not a a political science expert, but at the very least, I see now that a lot of these programs like war on poverty, war on drugs, a lot of things that the government has done to help people has really had the outcomes have been really piss poor and um, have really created a society or a, a sect of society that's become really dependent. And it's, I think it's hurt them. I think it's hurt the family unit. Um, I think it's hurt minorities um, I, I just, th that's one example. Um, I thought the LGBT stuff was nice too. I thought, I always loved the rainbow flag. Um, I thought we were helping kids figure out who they were. Um, I never, I really didn't see. Um, I was very actually open to, I, I still am to a degree, transgender identities, but I really didn't see that people might take advantage of it, that that would be a lane for predators to come through. I didn't see that part. Um, because I was naive and nice. <laughs> and now I see those things. So those are those are a few examples. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to know what therapists are being taught in school and in training around gender identity and trans identity. Well, when I was going to school in the late 90s, honestly, not very much. Gen gender identity was not such a big topic then. Um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, that's, those topics were taught to us. And obviously I was taught and I still believe in being very accepting and open, open to people who have different sexual orientations. And I don't believe that they can be converted, um, you know, that sort of thing. 
but um, now, well, at least in social work school, only because I've peeked at their websites and I've, I've looked through trainings, that now they're being taught, first of all, to affirm identity without any exploration. That's not something that's ever been a thing before. Um, I don't know when that started as mainstream. It seems like not that long ago, maybe two years ago. I, I don't know what the checkpoint was. But they're being taught to affirm. If you don't affirm that the child will go and kill themselves, um, that stuff was not taught in the past. And that's not based on any real statistics. Uh, any studies that they're citing have been um, thrown out. And they're not using real data that shows that's the truth. So they're being trained those things. They're being trained that I think, I mean, not I think they're being trained they're I think they're being trained that the trans is kind of like the new gay that we have to accept any trans identity without recognizing that there's a lot of underlying issues and a lot of other social influences namely social media and pretty much everything else <laughs> um so we're not we're not looking at the big picture our my field is not looking at the big picture I think most therapists that are going along with it are just not thinking about that. I think that the people though that are really pushing it from the top know this and I think there's some profit um, motivations or maybe some there's other influence but that's what's being taught now. And what do we actually you know like there's a lot of scary statistics thrown out around LGBTQ youth. Um, and particularly around this idea, you know, that you mentioned earlier that if we don't affirm the identities of so-called trans kids, um, then they'll kill themselves, that they'll commit suicide. And, yeah. you know, it's unless we want dead kids, we have to. Like, is there any, is there any truth to that? Like, are there kids who are killing themselves because people aren't affirming their gender identities? No, see, what they're doing is they're weaponizing a half-truth. So the thing is, is that kids, kids or even adults, people who identify as trans, they almost always have some other mental health issue. It's usually some comorbid issue going on. Usually they have, um, they might have trauma in their past. They might have, they might be autistic and struggling socially. So they're socially isolated. They might have an eating disorder. They might have just all sorts of things, depression, anxiety, um, relationship issues, whatever the case may be. So those are those factors make someone a higher chance of having thoughts of suicide or even making a suicide attempt, right? So they're more vulnerable. This is a, a vulnerable population. So that's making everybody scared. Oh, we have this vulnerable population. But, but the thing that they're not proving, and none of the data proves it if you look at it, is that whether you affirm or not affirm, whether that makes the difference of whether their suicidal thoughts and behavior is going to go down. Mm. So we don't, we don't have that. So they might be more suicidal because of other reasons. But the problem is we're not addressing what those other reasons are. We're just focusing on, we're zeroing in on this gender thing. And then it doesn't actually change the outcomes. They're still suicidal in the end. I mean, usually what happens is for a while, the suicidality or the superficial sort of mental health issues go down because they, they get a lot of praise, they get a lot of accolades, they get what they think they want, they get a lot of likes on Instagram or on social media, they, some kids literally get assemblies, they all get, right, you get all this attention, they're, they're stunning and brave, so of course they're not going to feel as depressed, they're, they're looked at as 
wonderful. Um, but eventually that stuff goes down and it takes time and like years. And so then if you look at, if you look at people over the years, if you follow them seven plus years, then usually whatever the thing was that they were masking comes back up for them. And so that's, that's the thing they're not talking about. So we're thinking short term. Yes, maybe short term. It does actually help, but long term. No. Yeah. And I think that's like a huge problem in society in general, in terms of how we look at and understand and talk about and treat mental health issues. You know, for example, like addiction Mm -hmm. is usually rooted in some kind of trauma, but instead we talk about it as a disease that you can inherit or, or people think of it as like purely a willpower thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and the root of the issue is is very rarely addressed. Um, but in terms of the, the gender identity thing, I mean, really, like, the underlying factors and anything else that's going on in that kid's life seems to be wholly ignored. Yeah. Um, and, I yeah, like, I, I think a lot about – a lot of these things just seem – obvious to me you know in terms of the the trend of girls wanting to transition to become boys Mm -hmm. for example um or just not be girls there's that too right like a lot of that yeah yeah like to me it seems obvious that going through puberty experiencing sexual harassment maybe experiencing things like sexual assault and molestation um would certainly teach a girl that they they didn't want to be a girl or that they wanted to escape their body. Yeah, for sure. Have yeah. you come across that? Oh yeah. That's what I that's that's I think that's what I saw the most of when I was meeting when I was at the program, I was meeting the girls and they were all non-binary by the way. Not at, at, maybe I was just meeting them at a certain mm-hmm. stage of their identities. Maybe if I met these same kids now, they might be identifying as boys. From what I understand, especially listening to detransitioners, they tend to start with the non-binary as kind of a stepping stone and then they move on to being boys or move on to doing more of transitions. But that's that's who I was personally meeting when I who I was working with. They were all non-binary girls, natal girls. However, you know. Um, so yeah, I was definitely seeing that for sure. What kinds of things were they talking about or what kinds of things were they telling you? So the, I mean they there's one girl that stands out in my mind. She did have sexual trauma in her history. And she, what I noticed, the pattern I saw was a lot of these girls felt very powerless in their life. They felt, whether it be from a, something in history or just for whatever reason. So then they, they, got, they became non-binary and then they can kind of control everyone around them. They could say everyone's a transphobe or a bigot because they're not using the right pronoun. And it gave them a sense of power. And then it would mask the other issues that were happening for them. And so that, that was the biggest trend that I saw with all the girls. Um, there was one girl that I think was more on the autistic spectrum. So she really struggled socially. And then this gave her a way to feel like she fit in and have a community and feel. And, and the other thing that was interesting was even the kids who didn't have the special pronouns, they got something out of it too. They kind of felt good about themselves by affirming the others. Like this makes me a good person by say by using the right the right pronoun with this other their friend, right? There's a way to make friends. Like, oh, this I'm I'm showing everybody I'm an, I'm a good friend by using this pronoun, and 
so it became this virtue signal, but they, they wouldn't see it that way. They're kids. They just want to be friends and, and be nice. But yeah. really what they were doing is what I saw was, was they weren't being themselves. They were trying to connect with these superficial labels. So I, I saw that, was, which was a shame. You know, which again, like, I think that's like a pretty common thing for teenagers. Like I remember when I was a teenager and you're just always trying to figure out what group you fit into. Like, what am I? Like, am I, you know, when I was in grade eight, that was like 1993 or 1994 Mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's like, oh, is it, are you like a a skid? Are you a skater? Like, are you like, I don't even want to say the rest of the words because they're all like (laughs) embarrassing and so stupid. (laughs) I was a total nerd in junior high. I mean, it was awful. (laughs) You should have seen the haircut I had. This was the late 80s. (laughs) And I had the blue eyeshadow and the the pink frosty lipstick. Oh, okay. I wore all my dad's clothes in grade (laughs) eight. I it wasn't, wore, it wasn't, it's I wore really like flannels and combat boots and like long underwear. But I didn't, yeah, same. I didn't find my friend group. I actually, I didn't, I did find my way. I think in high school, when I was a sophomore in high school, I joined the track team. So then I, I found my, I found my gang, I guess, with the track team. Yeah. So every, every, every teen, I mean, every human needs this to a degree, right? You're trying so, to find your tribe. Yeah. It's totally natural. Mm-hmm. And so you see these kids floundering, especially kids with underlying mental health issues or other, whatever it is, things going on in their lives that are causing struggles for them. It's easy to see why they gravitate towards this. Um, yeah. Actually, sure. I wanted to go back to the substance abuse thing just for a second, because I don't get to talk about it much, but, um, People don't realize, I I mean, I just wanted to educate the audience. So when I was working at a lot of facilities, they did start a model called dual diagnosis. Have you heard that term before? No. So they were starting to move away from the medical model. And I hope they still are because I'm not working with substance abuse people now. But where it was called dual diagnosis, which is basically acknowledging someone has both addiction and a mental health issue and how they interplay with each other. Mm. So it was they would call people dual diagnosis so that was that became a thing so they were kind of moving away from some of the some of those trends you were saying earlier i just wanted to say that yeah no i appreciate that i mean i'm really interested in that that conversation and that topic as well just because i feel like addiction addiction is quite misunderstood and Mm -hmm. it probably is becoming more widely understood i think are you familiar with gabor mate Mm -mm. I mean, he's done, he's Canadian. So um, uh, I went to school with his, one of his sons and, and um, he, Gabor Mate worked in Vancouver on the downtown East side with a lot of addicts over the years. Um, and he wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, I believe, about addiction. And like a couple of the things that I found most interesting um, that he talked about, one of which was that every single woman that he worked with on the downtown east side who was struggling with addiction had some form of sexual trauma, yeah. abuse, et cetera, and probably like a lot of it, but you know, all yeah. of them, every, every woman that I he worked with. I believe it. Yeah. And then, and then that, you know, What's happened for most people is that there's some kind of trauma when they're young and it's, you know, 
for lack of better words, maybe you have better words, it sort of rewired their brain. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, so the I think they're complex. Themselves is through this mechanism, and it's very hard to wire it differently when you're like triggered by something. You're like, I'm triggered by this, and this is the thing that will fix the thing. Right. It's it's really complex, and of course, there's environmental issues. There's, I think there are some organic issues depending on the individual, and now if it's more normalized, the cultural issues. So yeah, it's really it is really complex. But yeah, I just wanted to circle back to that but yeah okay. it's, it is it is honestly there I, that's why i mean there's a lot of this is interconnected so when we start enabling these things and we don't look at people as complex individuals i think it just gets lost all around and so that's what's i think that's what's missing some of this maybe is insurance driven or this quick fix mentality or this internet pop culture therapy thing happening people self-diagnosing like you said earlier or overdiagnosing. Um, but but yeah, there's this quick fix and not and not look looking at ourselves and each other as individuals with mm -hmm. just a whole it's, there's so many factors in all yeah. of this. Yeah. I I'm interested because of your your the truthful therapist <laughs> name. Um if you saw a point where we started to conflate compassion with lying or if that's sort of like a western cultural phenomenon because i imagine that mm -hmm. it is different in different cultures you know like how we communicate with one another yeah. and i do notice especially among women actually that but you know men probably do this too so i shouldn't pin this all on women um that you know it's seen as like better and nicer to lie, to lie to your friends, you know, like your friend is going through a breakup or dealing with a bad relationship or maybe dealing with like problems with work or struggling with another friendship. And what you're sort of expected to do is be like, oh, like that person's terrible and you're right and you're the best. And like yeah. you go girl, like everything you do <laughs> is perfect. <laughs> and if you don't do that, you're like considered like a bitch yeah <laughs> I mean, but that's right, not truthful. always really helpful advice especially like when you're dealing with a bad relationship to tell somebody to like oh no like that's it's fine it's all good you're all good you have zero flaws like it actually right. is helpful to sort of like think critically about like what you're doing or how you're participating in this pattern or like just to be honest and be like you know what that's shitty yeah <laughs> that's not I cool that would be a better friend. I mean, I guess it, it's tricky, right? This is, we get really philosophical about this and there's a lot of cultural things, like, as you said. Um, so yeah, literally telling every single truth is probably not going to work out so well, right? No, I mean, you don't want to just be constantly <laughs> be like honest at all times in every point of your life because like people that. would think that you were an asshole and you would probably <laughs> right. be a little bit crazy. Like <laughs> that liar, liar movie with Jim Carrey, you know? We can't, like, yeah. If you can't tell a liar, you're in really yeah. big trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess there's certain uh, lines you, you don't always want want to tell the whole truth in certain circumstances but at the same time when when it's really harmful to someone and i specifically think if someone's paying you to be a therapist to help someone work out their issues you need to be able to deliver the truth maybe in a in a way that the person can digest it maybe not all at once um, there's something called motivational interviewing where and that's actually i use a lot in substance abuse where you 
meet the person where they're at and you kind of help nudge them to be able to figure out what where when they're ready to change so you're you're not colluding with them but you're also not telling them to just you know just stop and it just, that's not usually going to help so um there's a lot of skill to it and i think it also depends on the individual and the culture we're talking about here yeah um, but yeah when we're talking about gender for example this yeah, this just, I'm just going to lie to about what, what you really are. If we're not living in actual truth here about, I mean, if we're going to be honest, you're, for example, you could say you're a man who wants to live as a woman. And if this is a choice for you, let's talk about how and why this is the best choice for you. And what might be some of the things, you know, how, what are the consequences and how this will work out for you, right? Something like that. But you're not going to say you are a woman now, right? That 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 wasn't even a thing before, right? I mean, when did that start? Like, I mean, people talk about, oh, there's always been trans people. And it's like, no, there's been people who cross-dressed. There's been butch lesbians. There's been, you know, even people who wanted to get cosmetic surgeries to, like, change their bodies so that they had the, the body parts yeah. or replicas of the body parts of the opposite sex. But it's not been until relatively recently where you actually said to a man who now identifies as a trans woman or as a woman that you're literally a female. Yeah, never. And and the real and it's interesting. So, um, like Buck Angel and I have connected online, and so and he reposts a lot of my things. So, a lot of his followers who are they would call themselves transsexuals, they follow me and they like what I have to say. They don't think it's transphobic. They like that I'm saying it. There's a lot of people in the trans community itself that don't like this lie that trans women are women. They they think it's a, actually a mockery of who, what they what they're going through and who they are and what mm -hmm. their own struggles really are. So even people who are the people that were they say are trying to protect or help or make feel better are hating it. They they think it's terrible. So. Yeah, well, and I think it's super wrong. it's super harmful to people who believe they are transgender and are wanting to transition because if you're telling uh, a young man or a young woman that you can literally become the opposite sex, they're in for a world of disappointment and pain. Yeah, and you see you see that which with detransitioners, they come out of it saying I was sold a lie, and it's really. It's really sad to watch them grieve that. Um, yes. But it's, it's especially, to me, most disturbing for children who haven't developed, the, they haven't developed yet their brains. They, children don't understand shades of gray. They're, they're more concrete thinkers. And young children have kind of magical thinking where they think they can change things or do things. I mean, there's all these developmental pieces about children. So we're basically mind-fucking kids. Am I allowed to say that <laughs> Yeah. And so we're is it, it really disrupting I think the development of children by these lies. They they become these sort of glasses of water that spill everywhere because they don't know what's what's up and what's down. And when we're when we're feeding them these lies and confusing them with all these different identities that they, that can change that are fluid and they see their teachers changing and their their peers changing. I mean it's it's stressful. I think that in itself is anxiety provoking to not understand what's going on because nobody understands because none of it makes sense. So how is a child supposed to make sense of this? 
Um, so these kinds of lies, I think, are really scary and harmful. And I think it's meant to honestly disrupt their development. And it's going to really, I, I, this is like a big social experiment. I don't know how this is going to pan out in the future when these children grow up with this, these messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really troubling. Um, you And speaking of which, you were just recently involved in a rally yeah. um, organized by Our Duty um, connected to challenging this ideology that's being pushed onto kids in a really harmful way. Yep. Can you talk about the rally? Sure. Um, so it was organized by a woman, woman named Erin Friday. She is a very passionate mom who had a daughter who was basically in the cult and she was able to get her, her daughter out but she's become very passionate about this topic as she's learned more and more about it. And her goal for this rally was for us to go down there, obviously to be there with our signs and to be visible, but also to talk to, it was a pediatric convention to talk to the pediatric doctors about the harms of gender medicine, because most of them honestly don't really know what's going on. They're not, they're not involved. They, they're in their own specialties these aren't the gender doctors. These are just regular pediatricians, whether they're in general practice or they have a different specialty and they encounter a child with this and they send the child to the gender clinic thinking they're getting what would be common sense. I'm going to screen whether it's genuine or not, or, you know, whether what, what just screen something, right. Rather than just instantly affirm. Um, and so we want, we came down and they, they put together a whole bunch of packets to hand out to doctors, it, um, but unfortunately, the doctors didn't want to talk to us. They were in specifically instructed not to talk to us. So we didn't, weren't able to pass out this information. This was the, sorry to interrupt, it was the mm -hmm. conference for the American Association of Pediatrics? Yes, yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. That's it, yeah, yeah. In Anaheim, California. Okay. But, but I'll tell you, though, it was great. So it was really, for I'll just personally, it was great to meet certain people that I've talking to online some people i've met before but got to spend more time with i got to hang out with more detransitioners and and hear them talk we were standing next to people who were counter protesters and talking about how they they were honestly at the time acting fun and dancing to music and waving their colorful flags and we were having a discussion about how well this is it this is why look how fun they look right and this is why everyone, well, not everyone, but so many people get sucked into this. So we had that conversation. Um, it was, yeah, it was really wonderful to meet people, to see the passion. People were working really hard to see people together, to see, um, yeah, just this, to, I think, I think the biggest goal that was met was having us join together and meet each other and get to know each other. I think that's really important. I yeah. think online, Twitter, whatever, just only goes so far. And to meet people in person, it, I think is really important for us to be able to continue this fight and feed off each other's energy and, you know, fight further. I think it brought a lot of hope for a lot of us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, one of the things that I learned from doing in-person events and panels is like how valuable it is for us to all get together in one yeah. room versus only, I think you lose that when you're used to only engaging online. I think mm -hmm. you forget how important it is to be around people face to face 
and how galvanizing and inspiring yeah. that is. It's so, so many, probably almost all of the events I've ever done, you know, something would come out of that wherein like women in the audience would meet each other and they would form a group or they'd organize something themselves. Yeah. And it just, you know, like it helps people feel like they're not alone and they feel empowered. Like, oh, we're all here. Like we can do something. Exactly. We can, exactly. These are real people. And then I, I was able to, personally, I was able to partner with some people who are leading parents groups. So I'm going to be running some workshops for some parent groups. Um, there was a screening for that documentary that I'm in. It's called Disconnected. So um, where can people find that? That is on runawayplanetpictures.com. Okay. And it's called Disconnected. And it's, tell me a little bit more about that. It was done by an independent filmmaker. It mostly focuses on a lot of these topics that you and I were just talking about, some of the underlying issues of why people might be attracted to being trans that might not necessarily be trans, some of the trends. Um, it, it has a whole host of in people they interview, including me, <laughs> about um, what's going on in, in, with kids mostly and um, it gets into a, a lot of philo philosophy, like transpersonal, transhumanism and things like that, which honestly was very thought provoking to me. Um, yeah, I think it just, I think it's well done and it, it just, I think it will bring out more for, for people who are new to it, it will introduce them to the topic and help them understand what's going on for the people who are in it. I think it will still bring a new layer of just at least thought about what's going on on a larger scale. And that's, that's what it did for me, quite frankly, because I'm not in the whole movie. So I learned from other people in the movie. <laughs> um, Great. Yeah. It was really emotional. I'd say that weekend was really emotional. There's a, I posted on my Instagram, like I was literally crying on stage. I had to go up on stage after watching that. The ending of the movie has a very hopeful ending. I don't want to give it away, but to me it was very emotional. Um, because the detransitioner in it that's featured, something really hopeful happens at the end, and it it made me cry. <laughs> like I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> I'm like up there, like ah. Yeah. And then I think it was even more emotional after that whole day, being you know standing up there with all of them, having these stupid trans activists yelling at us in our faces. Um, there's a woman named Abigail Martinez. She's a mom who was there. She told a, her story really moved me. And I remember when it happened, but meeting her in person had, I think, a more deep impact where her daughter was taken away by the state of California and her daughter was put in foster care because she didn't want to give her child, I think she was 16, but a minor, I think she was 16, testosterone. So they put her child in foster care, put her child on testosterone. I assume told the child that her family is not nice or not don't love her the way that they do and unfortunately that girl killed herself the the daughter and it was just such an emotional story basically that cal i feel like the state of california and the government of california killed this child pulled her away from her family and it, it's it's just such a devastating story and while abigail was telling her story I, there's a video of it up on twitter and and on my instagram while she was telling the story stupid trans activists started yelling in her face saying like protect trans kids and you're you're killing kids and didn't even realize that this woman was literally telling a story about her own child who killed, killed herself because she was affirmed and put on these drugs Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the whole detail. Maybe it was the, the, the testosterone itself that changed her mood that did, or if it was because of being separated from her family. I mean, I obviously don't know the girl, so I don't know exactly how 
it went down. But it's such a terrible, heart wrenching story. I and, think there's yeah. like, sorry, to, yeah, I, it's okay. I, that's it. Yeah, I think there's so many like devastating stories that have come out of this trans ideology, particularly as it's been imposed on kids and will continue to come out. Unfortunately, it's like so maddening and upsetting. And I'm, I'm so grateful that people are banding together now to stop it. Um, You know, it seems like there's a lot of people finally working against this in the U S and in the UK, Mm -hmm. especially, um, Canada is behind on this and I hope that they start to get it together too soon because it's really, you know, they're destroying kids' lives. They really are. So yeah, I got to meet all these people in person and connect with them and and feel it. You know, I, I, I'm a sensitive person. I'm a therapist <laughs> and I really felt it. I really felt a lot of the pain and the grief around this. So it really, it really empowered me even more to mm-hmm. keep what I'm doing. It also, and this is not logical, but I have a lot of guilt about it. I wasn't even working during the time this was really coming through, but I was blinded by the, you know, the love bombs and the past and the rainbows. And I didn't realize that the agenda was, had been seated a long time ago and I didn't see it then. So uh, I, I guess I have some guilt and I want to help out that my profession is one of the major professions that are, that's causing this stuff that's dividing families. That's, reinforcing victim mentality that's making little boys feel bad about themselves making white kids feel bad about themselves like there's so many things yeah that i just that's why i came out as the truthful therapist and we can all fight together and right now gender i think is the the biggest hot topic because it's so egregious and as soon as you learn more about it it's just like how could they do this and it's not sustainable it's not going to last but for now we're in a fight we're in a real war yeah well, thank you for fighting. Thanks so much for your work. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. It was really great to talk with you. Um, tell us where people can find you online. Okay, so I have written a parent's guide to mental health, which is, it's not all political. Quite frankly, it's not that political at all. It's really just a, a guide to mental health to learn about therapy, what what's ethical ethical therapy and what different types of therapy, give, give parents the language to be able to challenge therapist to be able to screen for woke therapists or just unethical therapists or unskilled therapists to understand what are different types of therapy and to understand all different things, what dialectical behavioral therapy is. So I I wrote a whole bunch of modules and that's on the truthfultherapist.org. That's the best way you can find me. I'm also on social media as the.truthfultherapist.org. I'm on Twitter as Red Pilled LCSW. I wanted to be the truthful therapist, but it's too many letters. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just started a Substack. It's I just put out a thing yesterday, and that's Pam the Truthful Therapist Substack or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm still learning Substack. I, I I actually have to go back and rework it. You, you I'll post to... links in the show notes as well. So, so I'll I'll send it to you. you. I just wrote my basically my personal story about being the Rip Van therapist on there and I have lots more things to put on there. So that's just getting going. So those are the main places to find me. Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much. Um, Thank you. again, it was good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. 
This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and regular private live streams. Alternatively, you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. You can donate directly at meganmurphy.ca. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. It's all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like from $5 a month to $20 to $100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.